Welcome back to another episode of the podcast, Rami Umptum Ruminations. My name is Scott. I'm the host. For today's episode, I have a special guest. And the episode is called Welfare and Self-Reliance Abroad, Part 1. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. I have a very special guest today that I will introduce in just a moment. Before I bring him out of the green room, he wants to maintain some anonymity. So throughout this interview, I will be referring to him as Nolan. And as we discuss some of his past and some of his uh, time in the church, in our discussion, we will be very minimal with the details that we cover. As I said, this guest is very special. Very similar to my interview with uh, Brian Harris, he worked for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints for a number of years. His particular employment was not in church headquarters, but abroad. And he has a fascinating perspective on the inner workings of the church as it functions outside of the United States. So without further ado, I will bring on my guest, Nolan. Nolan, welcome to Ramiumptum Ruminations. Hello, uh, Scott. It's nice to be here and have an opportunity to share some of my experience and perspective. You reached out to me after my interview with Brian Harris and told me a little bit about what you had done with the church. And your story sounds fascinating. And I think that it's something that should be shared. So I'm, I'm excited to have you on the show. Typically, when I do have a guest, I offer them the opportunity to share as much or as little about their time in the church as they want. I want to offer you the same, but I know that you want to maintain some anonymity. So you say as much or as little as you'd like. I, I'll, I'll say, uh, I will say this, that as I served a mission overseas, um, it really changed the course of my life. Uh, became very interested in the region and the country and continue to participate and sort of uh, make it a significant part of my life. And uh, over time, that eventually led me to uh, church employment, which um, really was never in my plan. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's been a fascinating, frustrating at times and an exciting experience. But yeah, it's been the lens through which I've viewed uh, the world and in particular, uh, my experience in the church, for sure. The lens of being outside of the United States as an expatriate or? Uh, yes, as uh, you know, living in, li living outside of the U.S. and um, in a developing part of the world, you're away from a lot of the sort of the modern, uh, advanced lifestyles, you might say, and it gives you a different perspective on, on people and organizations. Culture is a big, big part of it. So anyway, uh, yeah, and this certainly played into my uh, experience working for the church. You know, you, you, a number of years, I'll say it was more than five, less than 10 <laughs> as, as my, my, my tenure. 
did your employment with the church line up with your professional career? How how did you make that shift from uh, a traditional professional career to working for the church? Um, that's a good question. Um, I I was uh, recruited in, um, and uh, much of my professional experience definitely related to what I ended up doing in the church. Um, and I can I can speak a little bit more about that as I as I describe uh, the work. Going into this position, working for the church, did you have a strong testimony? How did how did working for the church impact your beliefs? Okay, that that's a that's a maybe a I want to say a sensitive question, but yeah, you know, uh, let me just put it this way. Um, I, I'd have I'd had family who'd worked for the church, uh, much closer to headquarters, and I was um, fully in, you know, fully participating, learning or or being exposed to the operations of the church. Uh, without question, changed my perspective uh, of what organized religion is, is all about. Uh, so, no question. In fact, I mean, I, I'll, I'll speak to sort of what what after after one year, uh, some some sort of I, I made this top ten list. But let me let me just briefly describe, and I, I'm I'm not hesitant to to say this, but because um, th- this this work goes on all around. The church, and particularly in the developing world, um, I worked in a in a, de- in a department which was originally called uh, Self Reliance Services. Okay, it's since had its name modified uh, slightly. So, what's the current name that they're that they're using for this? Uh, it's now called Welfare and Self Reliance. Welfare and Self Reliance Services. It has programs and resources and tools and so forth that are being implemented all around the world. Uh, you know, it was a global uh, initiative, and you know there were various. Some, some of the listeners may be familiar with uh, some of these resources, such as the twelve-week self-reliance classes. Uh, there's the Perpetual Education Fund, which many many uh, are familiar with. PEF. And the pathway program as well. Now, pathway. Well, we we had a role in promoting and educating or training people about the pathway program, but that's all really under its own department. Um, yeah, and then um, you know, well, welfare services. There was some humanitarian. Now, this the how how these functions are divided up around in in various uh, areas around the world may vary some. But uh, yeah, before we jump too deep into like the nitty gritty of like what your experience was and like day to day functions and some of the things you had a hand in a couple of like high level questions that I that I would love to uh, pick your brain about how many of these um, self-reliance programs were there around the globe in location outside of the United States with full time employees of the church? My understanding is that every area of the church where they have like an area presidency and uh, all those outside of the United States would have uh, this department. I think there's 14 areas around the globe. I think it's divided into 14. I'd have to check that, you know, and there's an area presidency that oversees those, those areas. And so you would report directly to that area presidency? 
No, there'd be a, there's a there's a there's an area level manager. Yeah, and they they and the area level report to a, like international level, which would be in headquarters. How many full time church employees are in each of these? The word that's coming to my mind is outposts, but what what, what would you guys call them? Two part question. So I would say any well, most developing countries um, would have a country manager. Some managers are over multiple countries. I'd have to I'd have to look honestly to see how many country managers there were around. I mean, and I can say in my area there were about uh, between seven and nine, something like that. It varied occasionally, but yeah. So you figure there's probably you know there's probably sixty or eighty of us out there. Yeah. Last, you know, high level uh, question I've got for you on, on this aspect is what is the mission statement or what is the purpose of these uh, these self-reliance services organizations? What What's like the mission statement of what you guys are trying to accomplish? OK, our role was to train local leaders on uh, tools and resources to help members become more spiritually and temporally self-reliant. And this would typically fall into three categories, education, jobs, better jobs, job skills, and then small business development. Um, And there was a fourth one that came in uh, that's sort of out there now. It has to do with emotional resilience or emotional health. I wasn't really involved with that. It It wasn't launched where I was, but um, yeah, so think education, jobs, and small business development. That was uh, the the idea was to train leaders on how to use these resources that the church put together to help people become more self reliant, which almost always means to stabilize their life through a better income. You know, so uh, they can have a better quality life and obviously, you know, participate in, in the church and its objectives. Yeah. In, in many ways, uh, it's very, it's, it's, uh, very positive. It's, it, it gives people something to focus on and, uh, it's a, it's a resource. It's a resource for sure. From the way you're describing that, it sounds like some good that the church is putting out into the world. Yes. Yes. It, it, there's a lot of very, um, you know, if noble's the right word, uh, you know, purposes behind it. And, um, and there, there were many, many elements of this kind of work that I, that I thoroughly enjoyed, um, you know, meeting, this is, this is one of the elements or one of the aspects of this discussion that I want to get across is that the, 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 the church in these developing areas, uh, I'll speak to this. I, I'm pretty sure this is well-established. In developing countries, most, I'd say most of the people that come into the church are uh, come in, they're, they're, from the, they're from the bottom third of the socioeconomic class. And, uh, you know, they're, they're looking for help. They're looking for opportunity. They're looking for ways to improve their life. And the church often provides, it's a community uh, and, and resources like this, so forth. But uh, in fact, a a big, very significant element, especially in the non-English speaking world 
is the opportunity for people to go learn English, which is what, uh, you know, missionaries do this all around the world. They teach English for free, essentially. And uh, so that's a big draw. And there, there's no question that that's a that's a major initiative or, or in, in various places. I'm not sure about Latin America, how much missionaries would teach English, but, you know, for people to learn English, that gives them an important skill they can use to improve their, their life. Anecdotally, I served my mission in Chile in the Concepcion Sur, and uh-huh. we did on occasion teach some English classes. Again, this is almost 20 years ago at this point. We did teach some English classes, but those that would attend were mostly members of the church. And so we discontinued that in an effort to focus on people that were not members. Uh, yeah. Again, that was just my mission just at that time. So <clears throat> let me, there, here's an anecdotal story that I'll share. It's worth sharing. Small, uh, a, a country with very small membership, um, very minimal missionary activity. The, the, the draw to the church is free English and they teach, they teach, they teach free English classes. I'm not sure right now there's been political problems, but, uh, you know, like I want to say three or four days a week, like for many, many, you know, and they have like 500 people come to the English. Well, um, it's also interesting to note that literally 90% of the membership in this country are why they're YSA. They're, they're like 18 to 25 year olds. Okay. And a large part of those people uh, that join the church, young people, they want to go on a mission. And because all of the missionaries from this country leave the country. Uh, and so I, I, I absolutely guarantee one of the draws is the opportunity to leave the country. Fascinating. That is one of the, but, but you can't really say that in the open, <laughs> you know, it's a sensitive thing, but, uh, yeah. And so, um, anyway, it, 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 it's presents a challenge, but anyway, it, in the, in the developing world, um, the self-reliance services is primarily geared toward the, the people who are at most in need. Oftentimes they're the people who are least able to access resources themselves. Um, you're talking about people that make two to $400 a month. Yeah. Now I know that these things are offered in, you know, more middle-class or like in the U S and so forth, which is another one of the challenges that, that we face, we faced was that where the dollar would go much further in a developing country yeah, the tools are often very Western oriented and don't don't fit well into the local ways of doing things. And, it, you know, but anyway, long story short, yeah, that's that's uh, that's the high level objective, as I understand it. I mean, you know, the church would say that, you know, to bring people unto Christ to, you know, the salvation, all that, all that. And so for some it works, but oftentimes it's very, very challenging. This is maybe one of the, one of my mantras, you know, reality is much different than the, I, I, the idealistic concept that we're trying to do here. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that I want to be clear kind of at the get go is the, the point of this is not to, uh, not to tell people that they need to leave the church. It's just to, to expose 
what's going on? What are these inner workings actually like? What's really happening? Right, right, right. So that that both believers and non-believers can come to the table and get an actual depiction of what it is to work for the church, specifically outside of the United States. I'm not here to tone police you. I'm I'm just saying where I'm coming from. Yeah. Um, here's one of my objectives or one of my thoughts. And that is, if we're willing to deal with reality, we can make better choices or make make better we, we can have better strategies and better approaches to solve problems. This was one of the this was one of the challenges that I saw very very clearly early on was that reality. It, most of the time, when we tried to bring up the reality of a situation, it it was ignored or not well received. That was the most frustrating aspect of what I of what I uh, another just another experience related to that. It became very very clear. This job that I had, there was absolutely no way one person could do the job effectively. It was like a job for three or four people. I mean, just on paper, if you just look at it on paper, it was obvious that, and and that was one of the realities that is just like, no, you, you know, you, you can't, you, uh, you just, so you just have to do the best you can given the circumstances. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there just wasn't a, there wasn't enough hours in the week <laughs> to get to half the stuff that needed to be addressed. So anyway, well, I think that's that's a good um, overview of kind of what the self reliance program was outside of the United States. Kind of um, real surface level of everything. You have created this top ten list or this ten things list as a great starting off point for this conversation. We can discuss some of your insights on, on one year and what you had written down. I, uh, I made this list literally right at, right at one year. And I was just kind of like reflecting on the whirlwind, you know, first year. I know you're trying to maintain some anonymity, but if you're able to, what, what year um, was this that you wrote this list? You don't have to answer that if you don't want to. No, I'll, I'll, well, I'll just say this was within the last what year? You want to know what year? <laughs> As I said, you don't have to answer since you're trying to maintain some anonymity. Within the last decade? Yes, yes, yes. It was in the last, within the last eight years. There's a little bit of humor in this, but I've also found that, you know, there's always, a, the humor always has an element of truth in it, right? Oh, yeah. So let me, I'll just go through, I'll just go through the list. They're just brief statements. And, you know, they, they all of them, all of them sort of, bring back a memory of some kind, but I won't go into all of those, but uh, I call it, uh, I call it the top 10 things learned during first year as an employee of the LDS church. That's what I called it. Okay. The first one was meetings, Trump results, meetings, Trump results. And what that means is I, I discovered that holding the meeting was more important than actually getting results from the meeting. So you didn't come out of the meeting learning anything new. It was more important to be there present and discuss. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It, we, there was just lots and lots of meetings. It was just like, what do we get done here? And, you know, so, you know, box checking, lots and lots of box checking. Okay. Now I should add, I should add something. Uh, there, there was a big opera. There was a big organizational change that happened a couple years into my tenure that was trying to simplify the organization. I believe it's since been rolled out worldwide. Like the transition from one profit to the next? 
uh, no, no. Well, this, this actually, I'm trying to think when this happened. No, but this is actually an interesting thing. Uh, the, the, basically the church went to something like from like eight or no, went from like 18 or so operational departments down to like eight or 10. Oh, really? Yeah, they, they combined a bunch of departments. They were trying to simplify the church. Now, I was in a meeting that tried that explained that the church is trying to simplify um, because it, it, that's what they, they view that as uh, critical for growth. They've got to simplify the organization, which we've seen a lot of that happen. Yeah. Anyway, meetings, Trump results. That was clear. The second one uh, was came, became very obvious. Change that matters comes top down. Uh, change that matters comes top down. I just noticed very clearly that when something was really important, it always came top down, you know, from bottom, we need to do this, we need to do that, can we, how can we improve this? Bottom up, extremely difficult uh, in the organization. If someone has some innovative idea, but they are not the general authority or they are not the boss, the idea will not be entertained. Right. Yeah, your previous guest talked about all the surveys and stuff and that's yes you know that's that's an effort to part of like provide information to the top so they can create the change that then goes down so anyway that that was something that became very clear uh the third one i wrote was everyone's project is most important you know that's that's um you know you could see uh, this is the most important thing we do and yes this is the most important thing everybody has the most important thing to do and that that Mm -hmm. that's a difficult you know thing in an organization like this where everybody f- wants to feel that their work is the most important. Okay. So number number four, this was an interesting experience. Uh, number four, I put down scriptural interpretation explains church organizational structure and is subject to reinterpretation. So what do you mean by that? We had a, uh, what's called a director of temporal affairs come DTA, they call them there. Every area has a DTA. They're like the operational lieutenant or operational guy they're the over the they're over the operational employees of the church in an area so as a manager of all of the full-time employees of the church in an area yeah yeah he's like the he's like the top guy for the for for the employees of the of the uh operations except for ces or for seminaries and institute seminaries and institutes sni they're like this special sort of group on the side. They they kind of operate separately. So anyway, there was a sort of a big presentation given and using all these scriptures to explain why there certain things were the way they were. And I just found it interesting that all of these uh, sort of modern best practices, uh, you know, business management things were were explained through the DNC or whatever. And, and it just, you know, then of course a a year or two later, a lot of these things changed. And so my point was that, um, if you can base something from the scripture, you're, you're justified in saying it, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and which is all just subject to reinterpretation a year or two later or whenever. I mean, you know, that was just something that came through, uh, this, this next one, this is a this is a really important concept I think for people to, to for for people to understand how the church operates, and that was this uh, I wrote down inefficiency can always be tolerated when there is no cost. Okay, incredible inefficiencies. However, when you're dealing with volunteers who don't cost anything, it doesn't matter. 
So as opposed to hiring out more people and and helping these members of the church become more self-reliant, I'm trying to understand exactly what you're referring to. As we all know, and this was this was clarified to me from from somebody close to me before I went to work for the church, and that was, you know, the challenge of working with volunteers. Um, the church can be extremely inefficient because it's run by volunteers primarily. Yeah. Uh, you know, at the local level, the, the, what you see at the bill, you know, that, that's, they're all volunteers. And, um, and so it's okay to be very inefficient because there's, there's very little cost to it. So, I mean, it's think about the missionary program and how inefficient it is. There's cost to the church, but the missionaries pay their way basically. And so that was just something that became very clear is that efficiency was absolutely not uh, a priority. There, there was, yeah, but it, it, it's easy to tolerate inefficiency when there's little cost to the inefficiencies, which is related to the volunteer, pr- primarily working with volunteers. Yeah. That being said, like if you ever had a program you were pushing forward or working on, would it be stymied because of these inefficiencies, because you're relying entirely on volunteer work? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> very, I mean, very, very uh, p- painful and arduous to get simple things moving forward after months, even years, because the volunteer people who were, who, you know, who were hoping to implement this stuff, you can't, you can't hold them accountable. It's very difficult to hold them accountable. Uh, they're doing it in their free time. They're doing it, you know, as best they know how they're not experts at it or whatever. And so it just things very challenging to be, to be done at a high level. Uh, yeah. Or even a medium level. So that, that's just one of the challenges of this work. Yeah. So a next one I put was, uh, this wouldn't surprise anybody. Toe the line equals fast track for people who want to sort of pursue a career long-term and rise. They got to toe, they have to toe the line for sure. That's that, that there, there's a, there's an important principle in church employment. It's part of what's called the leadership pattern. And that's, uh, it's called aligning with the brethren, align with the brethren. It sounds familiar. Maybe Brian mentioned that, or maybe that was just from our discussions in the background. Yeah. What they basically want the employee workforce to, uh, be, they, they want the, the brethren to lead, meaning to they, they whatever work's been done and behind the scenes, they want to let the brethren or the, the leaders sort of put it out there and push it before anything else happens. That that's part of it. But and they don't want they don't want employees sort of going off and doing their own implementing their own ideas and stuff. But uh, anyway, you have to you have to tow. So so I guess I guess it, it, this is what this is what contributes to the slow pace of change in the church. Now, people would say, well, there's been tons of change recently. Well, it's all, it's all been, it's all, it's been top down for sure. Well, they've been in pilot programs on all these changes for a long time. Exactly. The question I have on this specific subject, perhaps you have a unique glimpse at this, but you're working there full-time overseas. Is there an impression or is there are there people who take these positions in an effort to eventually become part of the 70 and turn this into a lifetime career? 
is that something that's discussed? Is that something that's that's like on the minds of some of the people that work there? Like, yeah, this is an interesting question. There's an important observation that I there's something I noticed years ago, which which I think was highly problematic, but it's related to what you're asking. I, I don't think anybody comes into church employment with uh, the hope to rise up and go into, you know, become a general authority or some high level. I don't think anybody really does that, but uh, maybe after so many years, I, I, I haven't been exposed to that. Now, ecclesiastical leaders, uh, that's a different that's a different animal, I think. This is something that's important to understand. The ecclesiastical side and the operational side of the church, they try to keep these separate. But this is, this is one of the big problems, which I noticed many, many years ago, 20 years ago or more. That was in countries like where I am. Well, and it'd be very, it'd be very interesting if somebody did a study of this. Maybe it's been done. I don't know. It'd be very interesting. I think there's something to be learned from this. From my experience, most of the people running the operational side of the church were also running the ecclesiastical side of the church in those countries. There was a tremendous amount of overlap, which naturally causes conflict of interest. Okay. I've seen this for 30 years where, you know, my colleagues, you know, they're all like stake presidents or counselors or, or, you know, in the mission presidency and all this kind of stuff. They're not only do they run not only do they help on the operations, but they're running the ecclesiastical side as well, which can create conflict of interest. I've seen it over and over again. To be specific, what sorts of conflict of interest are these scenarios creating? Let's say you're in operations Mm -hmm. uh, and you want to do something, but you're also in an ecclesiastical setting where you can help sort of get that approved or get it moved forward or uh, allocate, allocate resources to it. You know all the right people to get something done. Um, it, it just gives people who also work for the church undue influence. It gives them much more power than they might otherwise have. It over, yeah, over resources and decision decision making. Number seven, if you, I, I said, if you discover how poorly something is being run upon closer inspection, it's usually much worse. <laughs> now, I, I say this, and I say this, and you know, in jest, but. And not to be negative, but it, it was extremely uh, surprising to, you know, you as a church employee, you get to see statistics, you see various data. And a lot of times you look at this data and you're like, that doesn't seem right. And you go, you, you see things firsthand, you're like, no, no, it's much worse than this, you know. Um, I, I saw this up close as I, as I came in and I was new, you know, there's, there's a expectation about certain level of leaders. Well, if I ask them to do this, they'll know exactly what to do. That is absolutely not the case. It's not the case at all. Where you're where I was dealing with leaders who I, you know, I assume they they know what to do. And the fact is they really don't know what to do about how to how to implement or how to how to how to hold a meeting, for example, or how to call a meeting and notify people, how to communicate uh, and organize things. You assume they can do these things, but oftentimes it's a big challenge. Uh, and so that was, that was a real challenge. So my expectations about what I could do early on had to come way down. 
like, oh, we could we could do uh, you could do an eight out of ten. Well, no, we'll be lucky to get like a three out of ten or four out of ten. So that was a that was um, very unexpected as I as I got into this. This was this is related a little bit to our previous number eight. I put the operational church must always spin things positive to the ecclesiastical church. This was an interesting element of church employment, which I didn't expect. And and your previous guest alluded to this. You know, we in in operations we often talk about who who's the customer, and is the customer the leaders? Is the customer the members? Starting to talk about the church members and the operations like a customer provider relationship was was strange. Um, and I, I remember an experience uh, where I was asked a question by uh, an area 70. And I thought, I thought I was supposed to answer honestly, but I wasn't. <laughs> and, and I mean, I, I was trying to help him see the reality of something that had happened over the previous year. And I found out very quickly that letting him know the reality was not the proper course. Um, I had to, I was supposed to spin it or not let him sort of hear any kind of negative information. And that was honestly, that was a surprise to me that, and this was somebody who I, I've known for 30 years. I mean, I knew this guy a long time. It's like, why, or why do I have to be, you know, it, it, that, so that was just strange. It was strange to me that we couldn't be, so there's a there's a delicate balance. I'll put it this way: there's a, there's this delicate balance between the ecclesiastical leadership and the operational. So our job is to support them in doing their work as the ecclesiastical leaders, and we it's almost like we don't want to disturb their good vibes. We don't want them to feel like we're we're failing at our job, kind of a thing. And so, well, I, would, I would imagine that when they come in, they want to be that uh, that spiritual influence to help things move in the in the right direction i've got two questions when when you were honest and you said things exactly how you perceived them was this a conversation that someone came to you and said hey we don't talk like that or was it just the reaction of your peers around you that gave you the indication that this is not what you're supposed to do i was i was told immediately following the meeting to not I was basically told to spin things positive. I was told very directly. I wanted to understand if that was a clear direction or a social, like some social cues that you received. No, no, it wasn't. No, there was no cues. It was a direct statement. <laughs> yeah. For our listeners and for myself to understand this better, you've mentioned on a couple of occasions uh, the operational church and the ecclesiastical church. I want to be clear what those two different things are. Can you explain what the operational church is and why it's different than the ecclesiastical church? Just so that our listener understands this distinction that you've been making as we're having this discussion. The operational church is not set apart by priesthood authority. I think that's probably for, for their job. I was never set apart for my job. And so you're saying like the ecclesiastical side would be mission presidents, anybody local state? Yes. Yeah. Anybody who holds keys, pe people who hold keys. Um, although I have to double check what area, area presidencies hold keys, I think for their area, I'm not pawing, I'd have to double check on that, but, uh, area general authority, area general authority, when they say general authority, 
that's an ecclesiastical leader. And Area 70 is ecclesiastical leader. But like uh, the guy that's the, the manager, like the person who buys real estate or, or is uh, like a seminary or an institute teacher and all that, they're not an ecclesiastical leader. This is another, this was another aspect of church employment, which uh, I saw very, became a challenge. And that, and that was, let me look at my notes here, between your job and sort of your calling in the church, a lot of this is very, very blurred. There's very blurry lines between what's work and what is not work. That's, that's one of the it's one of the challenges of working for the church is um, because membership in the church is such a lifestyle. And when you go to work for the organization, it's like all consuming and it's hard to separate your work life from your regular life. And, and kind of the expectations can become uh, heavy, heavy sometimes. So what sorts of expectations? self-imposed or based on having to maintain? No, no. Uh, I don't know if this is an issue in other areas, but uh, in a lot of evenings and weekends, certain types of jobs, lots of evenings and weekends work. I mean, I was gone at least two weekends a month. and Traveling around the area that you worked in? Yes, yes. Yeah, doing training, you know, training leaders and so forth. And then when you're in your home area and you're you're not working, but maybe the local leaders ask you to do some special this, that, and the other that's related to your work. It's like, well, is this work or is this not work? Am I clocking in or am I just serving? <laughs> yeah, it, you know, and so, well, another, another element that uh, I, I did a lot of translation for meetings just stuff that's just thrown on you. That's not really part of your job, but you're, you're just like, you have the skill, we need you. And, and you come in and you, you just kind of pick up wherever you can. When you'd have a visiting general authority who did not speak the language, they'd pull in someone from your position that would come in and sit. Yes. 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 It's for like state conferences or for like, what, what kind of meetings are we talking about? Yeah. State conferences, um, state presidency training, uh, if they're visiting employee like area, what do they call area area reviews, um, stuff like that. Yeah. And so if you're available and you're a native English speaker, boom, you're going to get pulled to, they, they, they often prefer native English. Well, my, my, my experience is they prefer native English speakers to do translation for, for not for general authorities. They want to, they want. So, yeah, you, you get exposed to a lot of different settings and meetings. You begin to see these patterns very clearly about how things operate. Yeah. So anyway, the, the, you know, there, I, there's only two left on my list. I'll, I'll skip number nine. But number 10 is worthwhile. 10 is worthwhile. And this was my number 10. Statistical data tells us what we want to believe is true. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I saw this very clearly. Um, where st statistics would be kind of massaged or displayed in a way that made us feel like everything was okay. It, it just wasn't, I don't know, it, it, there, there, were, there were issues. I mean, I could see that this, I've heard this discussed before, that pushing bad news up the line of authority 
very difficult because there, there's a there's a real fear of giving bad news to people who we feel are inspired to do X, Y, and Z. Like, well, this isn't really working out the way we had hoped, you know? And, and so, I mean, I, I saw, I, I saw some data recently where, you know, they show a trend and they just remove all the numbers from it. They don't want to show the numbers. They just kind of want to show the trend. It's a, just a lot of little things like this that, that, uh, I mean, I could see that the statistics, uh, that were, collected and, and shown in various settings, um, it, it would very often tell us what we wanted to believe already. For example, uh, like a dip in attendance rates during the COVID time would be spun as it's not people leaving the church, it's just people not attending because of COVID. Is that so, the sort of thing that you're, that you're describing happening? Yes. There were there were some specific what we call KPIs. This 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 name comes up a lot. Key performance indicators, KPI. Yeah, the every almost every department, in my, as far as I'm aware, they have KPIs. They have these things that are these, these things that are tracked. They're trying to measure progress. They're trying to measure, you know, what's what's working, what's not, and so forth. Well, these KPIs would give an, an interesting insight into what's important to the organization. Yes. And yes, absolutely. And they, they'll change over time. Uh, they, they change over time. They'll every, I mean, th- this is one thing about the organization is um, every, I mean, there's been a real effort to get all of the departments and employees sort of on the same page. Like, you know, we're, this is the, these are the things we're measuring. These are all, all we're doing all these things to support these objectives that the leaders have and so forth. There's been a real uh, real focused effort to, to make that happen. Now, um, it, but it also, it also contributes significantly to the, the, the bureaucracy and kind of the, the, the homogenization of the, the, actually the corporatization of church operations where they very often want to operate the same way they do in St. George as they do in say, you know, South Africa or something or Latin America. They, they want, you know, what they, they want things to look the same, operate the same. In fact, this was the first time I'd ever heard this in a meeting. We were talking about, there was a discussion about the worship experience and what contributes to a good worship experience. You know, it was basically looking at sacrament meeting and what contributes to, uh, a, a good experience, kind of like going to a restaurant, you know, well, is it clean? Is it cool inside? Is it orderly? These things contribute to a, a positive worship experience. And I'd never really thought about it that way, but the operational side of the church very definitely does. They, 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 they look at those type of things, which again, it's from the Western perspective. Well, in St. George, they think this is a good worship. So it must be the same in Guatemala city or whatever. It's it's a form of colonization trying to trying to take these Western ideas of what is right and wrong for spirituality and impose them on other parts of the world. That's right. Even even just the way people interact and what's appropriate interaction. Again, these are these are cultural things that that oftentimes the this this very American organization is not sensitive to. Um, especially, especially when it's run by people who are just in country for 
two years, three years, you know, on a mission or something like that, you know, they're not concerned with the long-term implication uh, of their idea or their, the way this has to be done. So anyway, there's just some observations, but. What specifically were some of the KPIs of your department in the area that you worked in? We wanted to know how many people joined a self-reliance group in a given month. Uh, We wanted to know how many people finished some education program in a given month. Um, And those could be defined very broadly. We wanted to know how many people started a new business or improved their business, things like that. And I, I must add data, some of this data, extremely difficult to keep track of, to, to actually get, to get reality on paper. Very, very difficult. Because <laughs> you're not running like an organized, like self-reliance program. These are, these are handled at the local stake levels, I'm assuming. Yeah, they're supposed to be, supposed to be. Very often, very often though, we would go help get them started, but we would have to let them run by themselves. And but very, very, very challenging to keep things consistently going. Yeah, this is another, this is another uh, operational problem or challenge, I'll put it that way. And that is, um, th- this is a cultural thing. Um, well, may, may, maybe not. So this is a, this is a, we'll call it a, comp- a competence thing and that not in a negative way, but in many developing parts of the world, your bishops, your stake presidents, all their counselors, uh, these are not, they're not, they're not business people who went to business school. They might be farmers. They might be just a little store owner. They're not, they're not managers. Okay. Bishops, stake presidents, council, these are management type of its management type work. And it's all been laid out in the handbook. It's like this big 200 page book, right? Uh, you know, these people can barely handle 40 or 50 people in their little unit at a time, you know, and uh, so when you ask them to do this long list of things, uh, there's just no way. And so what do they do? They just ignore most of it. They just ignore most of it. That, that's the reality. That, that's one of the realities that I you know, would hope people would, would see. Um, now, there has, been, there has been efforts to change that recently um, in some of the organizational uh, structural changes or the, the meeting meeting change and so forth. But, uh, it's still, it's still a, still a significant challenge, which, uh, again, this is a Western, very businesslike organization and religion in many parts of the world is a grassroots, uh, type of thing. It's not a, it's not a, uh, it's not meant to be this hyper efficient, high demand, you know, do all these, you know, spend your 20 hours a week or doing all these things. Um, so yeah, I, I saw the, I saw all of this very, very closely, very closely for several years. Yeah. As best you can recall from your time working in this position, what were some of the numbers that we were actually working with in, in an area? Again, we're not naming the area. We're keeping that an anonymity. Um, how many new people were going through these programs each month in the nation or the nations that you covered? Yeah products or resources or manuals that they have a they have a life cycle in the church okay they have a life cycle 
these materials, they had a life cycle of about mm, three to five years, I want to say. And so early on, when you first start something, you get lots of people. We might get uh, three, I want to say three to 500 people that would go through in a year. And then it would, then it would drop the next year, you know, and then you might, you know, you tried to get it. They, they would actually measure, um, they would measure the number of people against the active, active number of adults. And they would actually see what the ratios were. It's like, okay, we've had this many people go through, uh, a course and there's this many, it's like, and then some, in some areas of the world, you'd have, you'd have like, statistically, you'd have like, 70 or 80 percent of adult members go through the course wow that's a huge number but some of them might go through multiple there might be one person who goes through all three and they would count that as three people he does it every time it comes around (laughs) yeah yeah i mean in my in in my country you know i would say over the course of you know over several years there was probably about uh i want to say between six to eight hundred or so that went through them um, again, in very, in very, in varying degrees of, of, of effectiveness, um, you know, it's it, the very difficult things to measure and put it that way. These are just numbers to me because I'm not familiar with this side of the church or this, this, this whole, um, aspect of, of what you're working on, but was that considered success for where you were working? Were those good numbers? Were those average numbers? And how would they, how would they measure that? It, it, it appeared to be success. Well, let me put it this way. Okay. The statistics would appear to be good and positive, but the actual results, what those, what the results of those, what, what those statistics actually meant, what the result was, I think was, was grossly misinterpreted or misunderstood. I don't know if you want to talk about the perpetual education fund. It's related to this. So the perpetual education fund, I, I, I have some insight into this and some of what I say is, is not new to anybody. Um, but I was informed very early on, on multiple occasions that the fund, um, the fund was created to create a, a, a revenue source to fund these loans. People, when people made a donation to PEF, they were not giving. They were not giving money to some student somewhere. Okay, they were they were giving money to a fund that was then it was it's called an endowment. Just look up the word endowment. Now, if, if you actually go read when it was announced in two thousand, I believe Gordon B. Hinckley made the announcement. If you read the words, he actually uses the word endowment. I think that's right. Go double check me. But what that means is there was a fund created to generate money. Okay. Now I was told on multiple occasions that the money that's generated from the fund covers all of the operations. It, it covered my department. It covered all the people around the world to, to run this thing and all the loans and so forth. So this fund was paying your salary. That's exactly my understanding, that's correct. That's correct. So just invested into the markets, generating some sort of annual or monthly income, and that money was used to... That's exactly... They use the term interest. Just the interest on the fund is what covers all of the operations of PEF. And I think, I think, I think it meant my department as well. 
Okay. But again, it's just, just take a number. Actually how the money flows and all that, I'd never knew that, but no, I was, I was specifically told now it may be interesting for people to learn that within the last, I want to say in the last two years, they stopped, they announced they stopped taking donations to the perpetual education fund. It's big enough to generate enough income to continue on as it is. Oh yeah. I mean, okay. There, there's two, two, two things to think about. <laughs> I am 100% positive that the cost to run the whole program far exceeds the amount of money they actually give in loans. Okay, so I would say for every dollar that they give in a loan, they're spending at least that much on operating the, the loan, okay? Employing people such as yourself and others across the globe, you're saying, yeah, administering these programs costs more than the good that they're putting out. Right, right. Now, um, as, of, uh, as of 2018, this, this will interest some people. I want to say it was as of 2018, I have to double check, but there were about 90,000 loans that had been given worldwide. It, maybe it's up to about 100,000 by now. In the 20-year lifespan of the program. That's correct. That's correct. Okay. Now, a lot of people get bent out of shape or upset about, oh, they're charging interest. And that, again, the interest is supposed to, you know, go in, into the funds to help fund more loans and all that. Now, um, the interest, I, I don't think anybody was ever paying any interest on their, on their loan because they had what was called incentives. They had a program and I think they still do. They, they would basically, if, if somebody took a loan and then they, they began paying on it, they would give them a discount. Like I say, they made a regular payment. They would also, they would add 25% of their payment to, the, like, let's say they were, uh, let's say they were paying $5 a month back. The, the incentive might give them six, credited as $6 back. So they were getting discounts. And then if you paid off early, you'd get an additional discount. There were these incentives that were going on. Uh, and so, at least in my part of the world, uh, nobody was paying interest on the loan. They were actually getting a discount, which was which was a good thing. Uh, but the the administering this program, uh, the the inefficiency, because it's all funded from Salt Lake. All of the money would go to the schools from a from you from the USA. From they would actually. It actually send it through Western Union bank transfer or maybe another bank. It depended on the country. Okay, because all these countries have different different rules and different uh, banking systems. It's very very complex, but made it extremely painful to get money sent on time and and communicated properly to the right people. Oh, I mean, just seriously, seriously uh, challenging. <laughs> uh, to, to organize all this stuff. Yeah. But it was all, all, and, and, and I, I, I tried to say, you know, we really need to get this money in the country. So it'd be so much faster and easier to, to administer this thing. And like, no, no, cannot do it. Cannot do it. No, I, I'm, I'm, I believe that there's probably significant legal and tax issues related to this, which is why they want to keep it in the U S there's rules that have to do with loans, uh, charging interest. All countries have different laws about this kind of stuff. And there's another, there's another issue that uh, I haven't really heard much about in these discussions. 
uh, in, you know, when the, when the church goes into certain parts of the world, they, they, they're very careful, uh, to comply with, with, uh, with the law. They have, you know, they have legal counsel dealing with everything and some countries, uh, it'd be interesting to do a research on this, that they are, they, they are very leery to give the church legal status as, as a legal entity within their nation. Yes. Or, or give them status that allows them to open bank accounts and have a tax ID. Okay. Which allows them to operate, um, easier. Okay. Now, one of the, one of the issues, uh, maybe related to this is there, uh, some, some countries are very concerned about, I think it's called, uh, enticement. They don't want the church to be using various things to sort of entice people into joining the church for, for benefit. Okay. And the PEF, if you think about it, Hey, I could join this church. I could get a student loan. I could go. So they have to be very careful, uh, not to appear to be enticing people, which is also why in some, you know, like some areas, they, they have to be very discreet about teaching English for free because it's viewed as an enticement. It's competing with, uh, businesses and so forth, um, in the free market. Um, so that's, that's something that comes up perpetual education fund. I, I suspect some of the ways it's been organized, uh, is to help deal with legal, legal issues. Were you over the implementation of the per- perpetual education fund in your area or was that, um, somebody else's purview? No, I, I handled, I, I handled that when I, when I came in, it had, it had been operating, uh, officially f- for about a year before I came on, yeah, it was run. It was run by a couple missionary, um, and yeah, so I was I was han- handling the PEF in in my country. You had stated early on in our discussion that you were performing the work of multiple people, so this was one of those extra roles that you were managing. Well, it was it was part of it was, I mean it was part of the job, but it very quickly. I, I should say this: this is an interesting element, okay, that your listeners may be interested in when it was launched in in my part of the world and it was heavily talked about you could use the pef to go all all the way to a phd okay you could use it to get a phd uh it's no no problem you can do that you know nobody did that but you can also you know get a master's degree with it and there was a few people that pursued master's degrees with the phd or with the pef then, uh, so after I began, the PhD was, I think that was immediately nixed. And then within a year or so, they nixed the, they said, no, you can't use it to, to pursue a master's degree. And then about a year later, they, they completely canceled the uh, four-year degree as well. You can't get it for, you can't use it for a four-year degree. It's only for an associate's degree or equivalent, like two-year education. Actually, it's only for a vocational degree that takes two years or less to obtain. Okay. So they, they, they originally opened Well, Actually, I should say this. It was originally, you know, uh, it was originally geared or uh, intended for return missionaries, young return missionaries who needed help to get education. Then at some point, I want to say around 2000, uh, 
2014, 13, 14, 15, somewhere in there, they opened it up to anybody, any member of the church, 18 and up, could use the perpetual education fund. That is, I believe that's still the case. You know, and it was you could get a PhD. And then they gradually they kind of brought it back to what it was originally intended for, and that's just vocational training, two years or less. You know, they they want you to go become a chef or an auto mechanic or an AC mechanic or something like that, which again it dramatic it can dramatically reduce the the appeal uh and and the number of hoops the number of hoops somebody has to go through to qualify to me again it's 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 uh very challenging i i think i don't know i got the impression they were making it more and more difficult to access the funds for some reason and maybe they want you know maybe it just wasn't panning out maybe the stats were showing that it, they weren't getting the results that they had hoped for because i do know that uh, you know those years ago when there were ninety thousand loans out about only about half of them were current on being being paid being paid back um collection on them is extremely difficult uh you know people move they lose track of them you know i i i'm i'm almost positive i'm almost positive they look at the numbers like, okay, we're never going to go after this these millions of dollars. We're never going to go after it. We just call it a sunk cost and you know move on. We're not going to deal with it. And that's probably what they should do anyway. But anyway. <laughs> As they're giving out these loans, are they monitoring the retention rate of the individual as they as they pursue their education and then later on to see if they stay active in the church? Yes, this is how well. Uh, I don't know if they have a way to do that, but I do know that for a student, they, they, they will only disperse, like, let's say you're going to do a two year program. They'll only disperse the first year. Okay. And to get that second disbursement for the second year, you got to go get your, what's called an ecclesiastical endorsement. There's all these, there's all these, uh, you know, doorways you have to check all these boxes you have to check off to qualify. Um, so those are ways to kind of rein, you know, rein things in or to keep, man, keep things. What was the average um, like dollar value loan that you were giving out in your area? Yeah, that's another question I mentioned. I in in my area, um, I want to say the average loan was probably around, I want to say between five and seven hundred U.S. dollars per individual. Yeah. And that would cover their two-year vocational degree. Oh yeah, I mean some of them. I mean, heck, we, you know, some sometimes a four-year degree you get a four-year degree for two thousand dollars. Yeah, um, it's extremely cheap. Um, but I, it'd be interesting to know. I would guess. I would guess that the if you took all the loans they have ever done, um, I would say the average loan worldwide is probably. I mean, you might have to take the U.S. out of it. Um, let's say for non-US, I'm guessing the average loan is between is, is maybe a thousand bucks. Especially in the in the, the developing world. Yeah. I mean, people can go get their education for they can get they can get vocational training for five hundred to a thousand bucks. Yeah. Of the you said maybe ninety to a hundred thousand total loans given out. Do you know what percentage of those were US loans versus uh, foreign loans? Okay. I don't, but I would I would easily say that well, I don't think they were even even operating it in the US. If if they were, it was very minimal. Uh 
I mean, I'll bet you it was less than 5% if, if it was at all. But yeah, again, the, the, the program was geared towards developing countries. You know, think of, think of West Africa, all of Latin America. I mean, it really kicked off in Latin America. Um, you know, Asia, um, India, think of all those, all those uh, areas where the church operates in, in uh, developing countries. Again, people who are people where think, think of, think of uh, where the per capita income incomes are like $2,500 to $5,000 a year. Was there anything else about the perpetual education fund that you wanted to cover? Oh, I, I will, I will add this. Um, I think the next big push from the PEF is into uh, what's called BYU Pathway Worldwide. Okay, you mentioned Pat. You mentioned Pathway. There's a there's a preliminary year. This is really they've, they've you know any return missionary can join this. They've they've made that you're automatically accepted. Uh, it's called what's the first? It's the first year. It's not called Pathway Worldwide. It's just called. I have to look it up <laughs> the name. But again, the you know BYU Idaho. Uh, they developed this this online degree, these online degree programs, and the first phase of it is is pathway. Uh, it's the first year. It's like the basics, and then you can matriculate into some kind of an online degree program that really comes through BYU Idaho. They're calling this BYU Pathway Worldwide. That does several things. <laughs> okay. It's a one night, you know, they meet online one night a week. It's a social thing for young people, but it also, it keeps them connected to, uh, the culture, uh, the church through education. And, and frankly, if there's one thing the church, I think could really do and, and emulate, you think of the Catholics or the seventh day of Venice, uh, is really give people more access to education. You know, they, they have BYU Hawaii. I, I dealt with that. There were there were schools. I mean, I think with these vast resources, they could do so much more with education. You know, I have I have a I have a bone to pick with this <laughs> with the, with the cost of temples. I mean, where where I'm at, what one where I'm at, one temple could fund ten thousand four year degrees, ten thousand four year degrees. Which, I mean, when I think of the impact that that could have uh, versus a very small number of people who access the temple. I mean, I know there's these theological things and all that, but anyway, uh, but I do think, I do think there is going to be a shift or there already started this shift to kind of, uh, channel young people into BYU pathway. Again, first year of it is all run by volunteers. Everything is done by volunteers in the church. The proctors for the in-person classes are done by volunteers, but the instructors are paid instructors, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. But the first year, the first year is a it's this online group thing that they meet every week. That's managed by volunteers. I could be I could be thinking about just the what's called the gathering that they meet on one night a week. That's run by volunteers. But the actual math English instruction, yeah, that makes sense. That there's uh, a paid employee doing that. Yeah, I think it, it would be interesting at some point. This is again one of the real challenges of. The church is the, the the lack of transparency. We won't really ever know what the effectiveness is, it was of the perpetual education fund unless they produce a report and actually, you know, give some real data to people, um, which I highly 
doubt that'll ever happen. <laughs> well, from what you said earlier on in the discussion, it doesn't sound like they're interested in having any reporting that is reflective of reality. No, they, they, that that's true. There, there's. It's hard to be a uh, an organization dealing in. Uh, how do I say? It? I want to say uh, uh, religion or philosophy or theology, and to also speak in hard, uh, what do you call quantitative terms, right? So a lot of things are left to personal interpretation, which is honestly that's 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 kind of the business model. <laughs> Fascinating. Well, we've been chatting for for a while now. We haven't covered all of our notes. There's still so much more that I wanted to to cover from what you have sent me. I would love to bring you back back on the show next week to continue this conversation. Is there any any final remarks you want to say today before we close things off? The real interesting part of the job was was being close to the people that needed help and giving them uh, tools, resources, motivation, validation for their challenges that they may not uh, you know, obtain anywhere else. I enjoyed meeting with people um, and working with them without having to, uh, I mean, I'll just say it, without having to be dogmatic about anything. Um, um, I wanted them to operate more from reason rather than from, say, uh, magical thinking or things like that, um, where they could make better decisions with using their faculties of human reason and, you know, looking at things from a reality rather than, rather than, well, if I, if I do this, then maybe I'll get this blessing and, you know, trying to help them maybe see that, you know, maybe the blessing is to use your, your, uh, intelligence to make a decision rather than uh, make a poor decision or and hoping that you're falling in line with the dogma or whatever. And so uh, that that was uh, I enjoyed that part, but I, I will admit, and I I'm not hesitant to say that that operating in this environment with all of the policies and procedures and bureaucracy was was extremely frustrating and discouraging. Um, that, that's, uh, you know, that was, that was the wake up call for me. It's like, wow, what, you know, what you, what you see on the surface is not what's really going on behind the scenes. That was, that was a, a big wake up call to me in more than one way. I mean, there, there, there's some really interesting elements to what, what I did. And, or what I was involved in. And, um, you know, again, some of it, some of it was, was really great uplifting some of it, not so much. And, uh, I, I believe that operating or sort of working from reality is more effective than, than not. So I'll just, I'll leave it at that. Well, we had a great conversation. We covered the top 10 things that you noticed one year in and the Perpetual Education Fund and then some high-level stuff of working in the uh, welfare and self-reliance um, department of the church. This has been fascinating 
And I look forward to our conversation that we'll have next week. Thank you so much for coming on, Nolan. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to this interview. I want to offer another thank you to Nolan for giving me his time to have this this enlightening discussion about the workings of the church abroad. It was a fascinating deep dive, albeit with some of the details veiled to maintain anonymity for Nolan. But it was a fascinating deep dive into the work that he did abroad as a full-time employee of the LDS Church. Be sure to tune in next week where I will have Nolan back on and we will finish our discussion about his time working for the church wherever you find yourself out there. Just finishing up a bike ride. I hope that you have an excellent day.